This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta, and you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Adrielle, we've talked about the development of several AI technologies for medicine. One thing I'd like to start with today is thinking about the translation of technology from something that works in a research setting to something that works in real-world clinical practice. Yeah, there's a ton of work right now on what's called the deployment gap for artificial intelligence. In other words, we're seeing a lot of great AI technologies developed through to a proof of concept, but we're not necessarily seeing that translation into production. And today we'll be spending some time hearing about the challenges associated with the deployment of these technologies. We're going to look at Google's effort to deploy a machine learning system to make it easier to screen for eye disease as part of programs in India and in Thailand. I'm excited. Let's hear it. So over the last four or five years, Google and Verily, which is Alphabet's life sciences and health arm, have been developing a machine learning algorithm to make it easier to screen for eye disease. And in a previous episode, we talked about diabetic retinopathy, which is when the blood vessels in your retina become damaged. Diabetic retinopathy is often caused by diabetes, and it's the leading cause of preventable blindness in adults. That's right. Now, in a place like India, where Google has been deploying their system, and in many other countries, there's a shortage of eye doctors. In India, the estimate is a shortage of more than 100,000 eye doctors, and only a small fraction of the population is screened for diabetic eye disease, and so many go untreated. Now, one of the first real-world clinical uses of the Google algorithm was undertaken at the Irvind Eye Hospital in Madurai, which is one of the largest cities in southern India, to test out a system that can recognize these eye conditions on its own. In addition, late in 2018, Google announced their research efforts in Thailand in clinics across the provinces of Patum Thani and Chiang Mai. At the time, Verily had received a CE mark for the algorithm. And just to clarify what a CE mark is, it's basically a stamp of approval that means that your software has met the European Union Directive's standards for medical devices, right? Exactly. Now, I want to highlight that the Google Health's AI algorithm had been shown to have very high performance, uh, which the team called human specialist level, on datasets similar to ones it had been trained on. But the algorithm's generalization to this new real-world clinical setting hadn't been tested. And one of the reasons that these AI systems have a hard time achieving reliable generalizability is that we simply don't know how the data that was used to train an AI model is going to be different from the data that the AI model is actually going to make predictions on in the real world. That's absolutely correct. One of the findings reported by Google Health was that they had to factor in environmental differences like differences in lighting, which varied across clinics and could impact the quality of the images. Just as an experienced clinician might know how to account for these variables in order to assess it, AI systems also need to be trained to handle these situations. And one of the ways that AI systems try to deal with issues like these is by collecting a small data set at the deployment site that's used to adapt an existing system for a new population. And it's also useful if the AI system can detect when it just should not make a prediction at all. For example, in the case when it encounters something unfamiliar. 
That's right, and it's a difficult decision to get right. The AI algorithm deployed in Thailand had cases when the AI system sometimes failed to give a result at all. So the AI system had been trained on high-quality scans. To ensure accuracy, it was designed to reject images that fell below a certain threshold of quality. With nurses scanning dozens of patients an hour and often taking the photos in lighting conditions that were poor in some of these clinics, more than a fifth of the images were rejected. So, in addition to these technical considerations, there's of course human barriers in a deployment setting. In this particular scenario, when the AI rejected certain images, patients were told that they would have to visit a specialist at another clinic on another day. You know, this requires time. This requires transportation. That's frustrating. Nurses too were reporting to feel frustrated. Especially when they believed that the rejected scans showed no signs of disease and that the follow-up appointments were really unnecessary, they sometimes wasted time trying to retake or edit an image that the AI had rejected. That's a great reminder that when you're deploying an AI system, you need to take into consideration not just the accuracy of the technology, but also the perspectives of different stakeholders who are in the ecosystem of the deployment. Couldn't agree more. Today, I'm excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Lily Peng. Dr. Lily Peng is a physician scientist and product manager for Google Health. Her team works on applications of deep learning to increase the availability and the accuracy of care. Lily, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners out there who associate all health things at Google with Verily, do you mind maybe specifying sort of what the different branches are that exist at Google? Just to clarify, Verily is a sister company of Google. Both of you are units of Alphabet, Google's parent company. Yes, yes. As a mother of twins, I have <laughs> much experience disambiguating all the different. The, well, it's only two children um, that I have, and so essentially. Alphabet is the big umbrella company, and Google is one of our "quote unquote" bets, so one company. And then there is Verily, that's another company with another kind of CEO. And so the differences are usually that within Google we have a research group that thinks about how AI technologies can really empower different parts of Google. And sometimes the AI group will help with search. Sometimes they'll help with YouTube. And the research group also sometimes will help within the health area, right? So our health group works with Verily. Actually, there's also several projects where we are working on the research, the ML work, and we're working with Verily on some of the projects. There are some projects where we have actually interesting techniques and tools that we share. But it's it's a separate company where wherever we are sharing, there's like negotiations around that sharing, and generally you think about Google work, we think、um, we focus a lot on consumer work as well. I think about this in、uh, two ways. At Google Health, we think about how we can make Google healthier. So how do we make Google products help people in terms of their health, and then also how can we make、uh, health Googlier. Right. So, how do we build products that are potentially tools for healthcare providers and other people that really bring a little bit of that Google usability, that Google AI, to really help with patient care 
Got it. And so you guys are underneath, you are in the research department of Google. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yes. So are you focusing on more research end of stuff or are you actually thinking about products that you're going to put out that will reach consumers or physicians? I like to think of us as a little bit of a bridge between research and products. So we do think about what can research enable in terms of products. So we think about translation of AI technologies into healthcare. We prioritize projects based on their ability to impact human health. And then we have a team that thinks about how do how does translation happen in such a way that is scalable, not just as a project that is kind of research only, but really how does it make that leap could you talk about that a little bit more? So you mentioned looking at problems that affect a lot of people. How exactly does problem selection work? You have done a lot of work across pathology, radiology, ophthalmology, dermatology. What sort of struck these particular problem selections? There are two things that I think happens in problem selection. So the first thing, which is kind of the obvious thing, is that I need to have teammates that are excited about this. <laughs> so there is an element of like, we have research scientists as well as engineers that like, they have to be excited about the problem. And that kind of goes into the second scheme, which is, well, what are the places where we're thinking can improve outcomes meaningfully, right? So there's a metric in healthcare called qualities or dailies, Q-A-L-Y or D-A-L-Y. And it's about life years that have been adjusted based upon whether or not someone has a disease or not, right? So in the case of eye disease, for example, a person who suffers vision loss is going to have a lower quality of life than a person who does not have the vision loss. And so we think about, well, if we were to get that problem right, how many qualities would be able to net, right? And at what scale, right? So we tend to think about problems that have really high potential return on qualities if that intervention is able to scale well. And to that point, we then think a lot about screening programs and routine imaging, things that are used many, many, many times throughout the year. Luckily, those problems also dovetail really well with machine learning problems where you need a lot of data. And so you need a lot of examples of something. So we kind of have a confluence like in the Venn diagram of things that are exciting to people on our team, things that are impactful in terms of patient impact in terms of qualities, and then things that are good for machine learning. And we find in the middle of that intersection, some work in around screening and routine imaging. Now, when, when you say things that are exciting for your team, I'm curious to understand what a team at Google is composed of in terms of who you're, you're working with on, a, on an operational basis and also on a strategic basis. Yeah. So our team's very interdisciplinary. So we have folks who are ML scientists, of course. We have folks who are clinicians. We have folks that are software engineers and uh, a lot of our product managers actually have a clinical background as well as some experience working in tech. Uh, we also work uh, very closely with our legal team, regulatory teams, as well as partnerships teams so that we can then work with external partners. It's actually really an, a really interesting thing. Um, I was, I've been reading this book called Range and it's about how teams that are very different and diverse in terms of background, teams with diverse background but high trust tend to uh, be able to execute quickly and creative ways because they all bring something very different to the equation. And so that's what we think about is lots of folks um, coming in with different backgrounds. And so that's the background component, but we also have people who are pretty enthusiastic um, and passionate about the work that they do. I mean, we have, we have someone on our team who does UX 
who has diabetic retinopathy, right? So we have folks who have family in India and actually understand the healthcare system there and are looking for ways to improve access to care there. Uh, we have folks whose family members have cancer. We have folks who are cancer survivors even, right? So I think there's an element of passion that also drives the team. Can you maybe give us some examples of problems or subjects that have stuck sort of in that Venn diagram that meet those needs that you described? Yeah, absolutely. So the one that we talk a lot about is the diabetic retinopathy work, right? So it is a screening program for sight-threatening disease for folks with diabetes. And there's hundreds of millions of people in the world that have diabetes and they all need to be screened. So that's probably the most mature project that we have. Uh, we also have some work in cancer screening. So for breast cancer or lung cancer, thinking about how we can both make screening more accurate but also more available. So another way to think about it is for diabetic retinopathy, for example, a lot of the screening work had been done in eye care centers or eye care hospitals. And those are harder to get to than primary care clinics in many places, right? And so you think about screening programs where they were able to move the screening site closer to patients, that's where we're seeing a lot more uptake. And in screening, some of the problems isn't really about the accuracy of the model. Like your model can be 5% more accurate, which is huge, it's a huge bump, like a 5%, let's say a bump, 5% bump in AUC could be like massive, right? But if you can't access that model, you can't access that care and you, only 30% of people show up for screening, you really haven't done that much good. But if you could move the screening closer to people, then you're all of a sudden you, you go from 30% screening rate to 60% screening rate, you know, still could be better, but that's a double jump in the number of people that you detected and got help early, right? So, so it's as much about an accessibility issue as a accuracy issue, issue. Got it. So I guess I'm curious sort of what the timeline looks like for Google Health and something like this. Take diabetic retinopathy as an example. You decide that this is an area that you guys are excited about, that you can help with and make a big impact in. Is there a person on the team that's trying to figure out whether or not this is a revenue opportunity for Google, or is it purely just, we want to see if our research can do something interesting in this space? I think the, the answer to that question has evolved. So when the diabetic retinopathy work started, we were a 20% project. Wow. Yeah. Can you explain what 20% project is for our listeners? Absolutely. So at Google, there is this thing called a 20% project where Googlers can take about 20% of their time. So one day out of the week and work on a passion project, whatever that passion project is. Uh, you clear it with your manager. You can't just like, you know, I'm taking Friday off. My 20% project is, you know, sangrias. Um, <laughs> so it has to be something kind of that is useful um, to, to, to the company. Not that, not that sangrias are not useful. Right, um, right, of course. But um, it, it was, so you take one day out of the week, roughly, to do something that you're passionate about. And some of the greatest interesting products that Google has came from this kind of 20% project. So we started off saying, okay, what are the places where machine learning can really make an impact at a big scale for human health? And within the imaging space, because we I had been working with the vision folks, was uh, diabetic retinopathy. And so it's like, well, I guess there's a double pun there, vision folks for vision. <laughs> um, and so we started that way and it wasn't really around, uh, weren't thinking about monetization. There was an aspect of thinking, okay, there are programs that have been shown to be cost effective that could use the scale, right? So looking at DR, looking at mammography and some other screening programs, there has been a lot of literature to show that this is cost effective. And it was a problem that we selected based upon some of the literature as well. And to be clear, 
cost effective for the patient or cost effective for the hospital? For the usually cost effectiveness is for the screening for the population. So, well, definitely for the patient, but also like for the healthcare ecosystem. So within the national healthcare system, for example, they will do a cost-effective analysis saying, if we did a population screen saying, we're gonna recommend that everyone does the screening, are we on the long-term going to save money or are we going to improve qualities at a population level? And how much are we paying per quality? Right. So there's an analysis where we say we talk about how cost effective a solution is um, based upon how much you end up paying per quality. And so that's kind of, you know, DR is considered to be quite cost effective as an intervention. And so as, you know, MAMO or some of the cancer screening work. So it had the bones of like a really good problem where ML could help scale the screening part of this thing. But we really rested on the shoulders of giants of all the other medical literature out there and the work that's already been done in showing that a particular program was going to be you know, safe, effective, and cost-effective. So DR was one that fit really well in that space, and there are other ones that fit well. But is the goal to sell it to hospitals? Is the goal ultimately for Google to make any money off something like this, or not at all? Is it just a badge of honor sort of for the company? Yeah. So when we first started as a 20% project, this is kind of a long, long about way of answering that question. But when we first started as a 20% project, we, we were not thinking about, hey, how does this make revenue? It was, is this even possible? Right? Can, can we even do this? And there's always been sort of this alignment is do the right thing for the user and monetization and whatever will follow. We'll figure that out, but let's do the right thing first. So that's still kind of how our team operates is do the right thing first, find the right problem, do a good job of that. And the monetization thing may or may not follow, but we'll figure that out. What we worked out at a certain point was working with you know sister companies like Verily, who actually does do a lot of work on productization and monetization, or working with cloud teams and other partners to figure out how this particular core technology can fit into product offerings with partners or with, and verily would be included in that. Because this is an enabling technology, but in itself doesn't really, you know, it, it can't exist as a product in itself, right? It's a little bit like, you know, you got the self-driving car and you got a model that can really detect pedestrians. That model needs to sit in something that's like a car, right? And so we're the group that does the modeling. There are other people that know how to manufacture cars and make kind of the next generation of cars work. One of the challenges that uh, a lot of folks in the space, especially those on the academic front and also startups talk about is the challenge of actually selling to hospitals and integrating uh, with hospitals. How does your team think about one hospital outreach, but then continuing hospital partnerships? Yeah, so I, I would say we work with hospitals from the beginning and we start adding on more partners as the project matures. So I'll give an example again on the work with diabetic retinopathy. We started off with a couple of hospitals in India as a lot of kind of our anchor partners, but also a screening program in the U.S., and they were there when we started building the model, specifying what we needed. And over time, we've done validation with those hospital sites and then ended up deploying the model that, is, uh, that has a CE mark in the hospital systems uh, with these particular partners kind of throughout the product life cycle. And then we've added additional sites, like add additional sites for validation and add additional sites for deployment. 
but we tend to work very closely with partners, a few of them to start with at first, and then add on more as we go along. Now, one of the questions I have for you is you've spent time as an academic first, uh, you spend time in startups, and then you've been at Google Health doing all this pioneering work. I'm curious if you could talk about your transitions through this role into your current role at Google. Uh, absolutely. So I would like to think that I made really good, deliberate, strategic decisions. I think a lot of times that might be rationalizing a little bit of what I was doing before. I think I loved science ever since I was kind of a kid. I wanted to work on impactful products and projects. And I really like the idea of translating breakthrough technologies from bench to bedside. And what I found in academia, I thought that the place to do this was under an MDPH program. And for some problems, it is the right place to go and get that training. I also realized when I was training that there were other players, not just in academia, but startups, larger companies, investment firms, the stock market, all of these actually played into how a technology got translated, got paid for and sustained itself. And I've seen lots of super promising technologies make it kind of almost through even getting FDA approval, but having no market traction and then that technology not working, right? So I kind of wanted to understand where the bottleneck was. And so it was a kind of a guess and test, right? So first it was like, well, maybe it's an MD PhD program that really helps with the translation. It's like, well, that's part of the answer, but not the full answer. Well, let's, you know, let's work our way up to a startup. And I got a sense that startups, you know, could help with a lot of the translation, but there were other players in the ecosystem that, that also had a big impact. And so started to move into a company like Google that was pretty big. Um, but everywhere I go, I optimize for, I think, learning. I think about the uniqueness of the opportunity and how quickly I can grow. One thing that sort of struck me as I've learned more about this space is how involved big tech is in healthcare, and that's Google, Amazon, Apple. I'm sort of curious what you think about that and why you think that is. Why do you think there's, I don't want to say an arms race because it's not quite an arms race, but it does seem like there's a little bit of a showing off happening among among the big tech companies, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. What I've noticed is that there is a lot of enthusiasm for health, right? So I, I've heard theories around, well, it's because, you know, as the founders and other folks kind of age and they have health issues and they have more people with health issues, it becomes more of a personal thing. They understand how important it is. I've, I've heard that. I've heard a lot of theories. My sense is that health is a pretty important part of everyone's life, right? Like it is a big pain point if you ever have a health issue or a family member has a health issue. And there are also these little things that we have to do every day to think about our health, right? So even choosing what to eat every day has an impact on your health. So if a company's job is to optimize for the either, you know, for the users, right? So Amazon, they're optimizing for the customer experience and, and the users there. Same thing with Google, we're optimizing for users and, and their experience. You can't leave out something that big and important to people's life and still feel like you did a good job of helping your users. So I think in order to organize the world's information and making it universally accessible and useful, if that's Google's mission, leaving health out of that seems like a big hole in fulfilling that mission. So for me, it kind of is inevitable if you are trying to help your users as best you can, that you'll end up somehow tripping over the, the health space. It also sort of feels like when you live in a country like the U.S., where there is sort of a vacuum that was left by the government in terms of healthcare, 
the only kind of institutions that have the resources to be able to fill that gap maybe are the Googles and the Apples and the Amazons of the world. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what resources you think a place like Google has that can actually help out in healthcare that maybe a startup wouldn't have the resources for. Yeah, healthcare is very resource intensive. So even large companies, uh, there's a limit on how much I feel like they could do in terms of resources into this space. Um, I think the resource helps, obviously. I think what the resourcing allows us projects that live in Google to to do is optimize a little bit longer term, right? So there's a little bit more tolerance for spending more time at arriving at the best answer rather than arriving at an answer so we can raise money, right? So that in some ways, a sense of urgency is a double-edged sword for startups, right? In some ways, you go really fast. And in other ways, there are a lot of experiments I bet people in startups wish that they could do, but can't because there is a threat on the existence of a startup, period. And I think at Google, we get the luxury of asking those questions. I think the resources allow you to do that. It doesn't allow you to overcome really, really big obstacles in terms of misaligned financial incentives and blah, blah, blah. We could address little things, but a a big thing will require collaborations of many, many, I think, large players. And you can even see like with COVID, right? I I, I guarantee every employee at, at all the tech companies wanted to help. And the help that we could give was really enablement. Right. So at at Google, you think about, well, what can we enable to help with measuring the pandemic, like the mobility data? Could that be helpful for public health experts? What can we do to enable our partners to respond to this better? But it's a lot of enablement and tools and a lot of getting everyone together to tackle a problem rather than tackling it yourself. Got it. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding it. So basically, I think what you're saying is if you have a narrow problem, a narrow scope, Google has a lot of great resources, whether it's compute or talent, to be able to tackle that problem head on. But if you're talking about more systematic issues like the health insurance system in the United States, that's where it can get a lot more complicated and Google alone can't handle it. Is that sort of right? Absolutely. That's exactly spot on. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and chat about deployment challenges you've spent a lot of time on various projects, on the diabetic retinopathy work, taking it through a lot of this maturity over time. And last year, there was a New York Times article on the work that you all have done in bringing this technology to a hospital in India and trying it out. I'd love to understand a little bit more about what you found going through this process of trying to port this technology and deploy it in India. It was one of the best things that I think a product team can do is actually deploy a product with users and you learn so much. So one of the things that we knew going in, but it became very apparent was it wasn't just about whether or not you built the best product, right? It was about whether or not you built one trust around that product. So your product isn't going to be useful if no one uses it and no one's going to use it if they don't trust it, right? So there's an element of, well, who are the users? How do we get to get this to a point where they trust it? Not just in terms of like, well, is the model accurate? Is it also reliable, right? So there's an element of, okay, how do we train the user to use the product? And the user in this case is the physician, not necessarily the patient. Yes, that is roughly true. We have 
multiple users will have like a camera technician or like an ophthalmic nurse who takes the picture. Uh, and so they'll get a, you know, is the image of a sufficient quality to be evaluated by the AI? So that's, that's one user. There is the physician who gets a report of what the AI is spitting out in terms of a diagnosis and then additional explanations. And then indirectly, there is the patient. They either get a referral or they don't based upon that particular diagnosis. So that's within one encounter. But then there is also within the hospital, right? How do we schedule people who are doing this particular thing versus some other procedure? Uh, How is it paid for? How does this actually integrate with cameras? So you go from the encounter to very quickly a systems level view of how you're changing the environment. And then, of course, if this technology is very successful, it allows for more and more people to be screened. But if you screen twice the number of people, you're going to find twice the number of people who need help. So have we adequately equipped the hospital or the healthcare system to then deal with the patient volume of people who are found to be sick? Do we have enough follow-up appointments? Do we have enough you know, surgical appointments, etc.? And did you find that increase in the volume of patients who were found to have referable diabetic retinopathy? So we're still in kind of early stages of thinking about this. That was in the product planning of, okay, we're deploying this, but we want to make sure that we are not overwhelming the downstream folks that have to see the patients. So we actually rolled it out fairly, you know, small, small scale, and then more carefully over time. So we're still kind of working things out through the pilot deployments, et cetera. But we understand the referral part being an an important aspect of screening, right? Because if you screen and you refer and there are no appointments that you really haven't done very much. So there's some planning that's done there. You mentioned payment as an aspect of the whole system that you were thinking about. Was there any sort of strategy that you thought would work well, especially in a screening setting for diabetic retinopathy in the deployment setting of India? Yeah, so we have theories of how this works, but we're still figuring things out. In India is interesting in that, I mean, I think 80% is, you know, private practice physicians, right? There isn't a national screening program yet, and a lot of the governance is state by state. We have heard folks talking about state-sponsored screening uh, and screening programs at the state level. What we've seen so far is that a lot of the screening and work has been done by individual eye hospitals or eye foundations like Aravind or Shankara and other kind of eye care based healthcare entities. They've basically said, we're going to do this and we'll figure out how the economics behind that work. So, you know, some of the hospitals, the terminal hospitals, they're able to handle millions of cases, not of DR, but of all kind of uh, all to comers in terms of eye disease. And they're self-sustaining because there are certain people that pay for services and certain people that cannot pay and they treat both and both have the same kind of equitable outcomes, which is pretty amazing. So we don't know the specifics. We have hypotheses that we're trying to figure out how, what would work best. But based upon what has happened with like Arvind, for example, it feels doable. It's just we have to figure out the details. I'm curious, how does the iteration process work here? So let's say we have the system is deployed. There's a training process for the nurses. They get trained. Let's say a nurse has this very valuable insight that they want to communicate and it has to propagate back to the developers who are working on maybe the AI algorithm or the interface. How do you think about setting up a communication channel to make that happen? So right now we have central hospitals or coordinating centers that we work with. And then we also have program managers that are kind of responsible for gathering feedback from the deployments, et cetera. 
I don't think we're big enough just yet to have these big problems with scale. But you know, if we're successful, then great. I think that would be fantastic. Right now, I think a lot of it is doing user research. We also send folks to like observe a clinic just to see what happens and like they'll have a stopwatch, they'll time, you know, how long it takes to do this and that and walk through and sit through multiple, like an entire day or more worth of patients to get a sense of what that looks like. So a lot of it right now is what we call ethnographic. You do observations and you do interviews, both with patients and with providers. And then I think over time, as these studies kind of compile together, you'll get a sense of, okay, what are the indications of things working? And then how do you design, let's say, a survey that can get administered so that you can collect sort of this system monitoring at scale to make sure things are working for you? So there are also out like, you know, how many percent, what, what's the percentage of images that we have that are ungradable or have a certain disease? So there are some monitoring things that we put in place to look at system performance. But there's also clearly, to your point, ways that you're collecting user experience in a scalable manner. And that's something that we're, we're still working through. I, I assume, you know, you deploy one model, let's say one part of India or one hospital. What changes do you need to make to be able to deploy that in, in another hospital? Are there do you have to train again? Do you can you just deploy the exact same system? Uh, so the model does not get trained again. So the model is the same model. It has a CE mark. So basically there's an API to, to call the model. So the model doesn't change. There are certain places that change based on systems so that the integration happens. And then we do have systems integrators that ha- know how to do this, that are integrating into all these different systems. And that, that's something that we're working out. And there's integration, mostly it's, it's camera-based, right? So different cameras that they have existing in a site or maybe even a new camera, there needs to be some integration into the software there. So we're figuring out kind of how to, how to do this. And we have systems, again, like, you know, partners are systems integrators that are specialized in doing these integrations. And so that that seems to be working pretty well on the technical side. I'm curious if there were any unexpected challenges that you faced when you were actually deploying the models technically. I would say a lot of the challenges that were somewhat surprising was actually around the quality of images. I think there were some things around the workflow that, you know, we're, we're like, okay, so let's say a patient has a very small pupil and it's hard to get a good picture. How many times do you try before you give up? How many times do you try before you add some dilating drops to get the pupil bigger? What is the right procedure for for this to happen? And we published a paper on this actually around how the the predictor for image quality can really affect the patient experience. So when we were as ML scientists and as, as physicians kind of thinking about this thing early on, we thought, well, One of the things that we want to make sure is that if an image is not of sufficient quality, we want to say that the model will not have good confidence in calling the disease in that image. And so therefore, we're going to abstain from calling and say that a human needs to evaluate. And so the question has always been, well, what is of sufficient quality, right? We had always dialed it in on, well, let's just have a human look at it because that's just, I think, better. Um, And so we deployed this and we realized that our model for image quality was probably a little too stringent. We were having a lot of people who were like getting referred. And the reason was because they just had a poor image. So it ended up being like a hassle for the patient. And so, so some of the assumptions around image quality, maybe we were dialing a little bit too much to optimal quality. Could we take a few steps back on the image quality algorithm so that we are still communicating uncertainty 
but at least giving some information, right, rather than no information. Could you actually talk a little bit more? So, so you have to pick a threshold at some point and decide, okay, wh- where are we going to put that threshold so that we're not overloading the healthcare system and sending too many patients to physicians who don't need to be checked out. We also want to set it so that we're actually catching as many cases as possible. Could you maybe describe how you choose that threshold and and what the thought process is there? Yeah, I think our initial method was, you know, first do no harm. So we, we were like, let's just be very like stringent about image quality. But then over time, it's like also like you kind of have to be useful, right? And what does being useful to the healthcare system really mean? And so there's two major inputs we thought about. One is, what is the patient follow-up rate, right? So how many people were we correctly diagnosing, right? But then how many people were we incorrectly diagnosing? But then overall, if you took what we call an intention to treat analysis, which is like everyone that came in through the door, how many people got referred that didn't really need to be referred? And what was the experience of people who got over-referred when it was just an image quality issue? There's an element of, well, what is the patient experience and how much anxiety or nuisance or whatever that the patient actually has to go through? I think a lot of times in healthcare, we don't think about wasting a patient's time because we're all really concerned about you know, the physician's time, which I think is a really important component. But here's it's a little even little different because we're sending a patient to take another day off of work to get evaluated, which is multiple hours wages lost. So you kind of have to think about the patient experience and you factor that into your decision making. And then there's another aspect of this, which is, well, what is the cost to the healthcare system? Right? So there's cost to the patient, but there's also cost to the healthcare system. And could those dollars been spent or those time slots, appointment slots been spent more wisely on someone who actually needed help? versus people who are false positives. And so these are all kind of going into decision-making on picking future operating points for the image quality algorithm, but potentially even future operating points for the algorithm itself. I'd love to end by asking you uh, on a sort of futuristic note about some of your work that looks at doing things that are not currently part of clinical workflows. You're looking at retinal images and being able to predict cardiovascular risk. And this is a very exciting set of scientific discoveries that we're finding happening at the intersection of AI and medicine. I'm curious, do you see a pathway for this five years from now, let's say to be the routine way we go about doing things and machine learning as being a driver for changing the way not only the clinical workflow is working, but also the kinds of questions that we're asking. Yeah, yeah. So as the scientist in me is super excited about the idea that we can maybe predict kind of novel things in the images that we're collecting or like the data that we're collecting that can be collected in a non-invasive, accessible way, right? So something that you can do at a primary care office or even at home. And so The interesting part about this is, you know, we know for grading guidelines, for example, that the way that grading guidelines come about is that we have an ensemble of experts kind of coming together based on their experience of learning by example. They come up with like the Gleason scale or the Nottingham scale or these other scales of like essentially ranking diseases, uh, uh, ranking cases that are more likely to have a bad outcome or less likely to have an outcome, a bad outcome. And so that's our grading scale. And Gleason, for example, is a grading scale that got invented like decades ago. And then they iterate on this every 
decade or so, maybe every 10 years, maybe every year, if that happens, there's some data guidelines every year. But the iteration cycles are, are very slow. And so we're basically using humans to like feature engineer, right, and try to predict whether or not this disease will progress. But imagine if you could do that rapidly, having machine learning and humans kind of work together to figure out this grading scale. So that's pretty exciting. I, we've already seen in many cases where the grading scales that it comes up with is performs quite well, but also that there are some explanation techniques that can be used to actually discover new features. So confirm old features that have already kind of been discovered and said, okay, yeah, this is something that the effect size is so big that humans can have picked it up. But there seems to be also like small effect sizes that can kind of aggregate into a bigger effect size over time that machines tend to be pretty good at doing, right? So uh, while kind of machine learning requires more examples, it's better at, you know, aggregating the small effect sizes. And then for, for humans, we can learn from kind of very few examples, but we really need these big effect sizes to make it like obvious that this is happening. So it just seems like there is like this perfect opportunity for the two to work together so that we are finding both big effect size features as well as like kind of aggregating the small effect sizes that are able to help us come up with better grading scales, better diagnostics in terms of personalized medicine, right? And so there's a ton of opportunity there, I think. And part of it is just making sure that we are building things in such a way that we're really thinking about the patient. How are we making sure that whatever we're scaling or whatever we're discovering is actually going to be useful for patients, not just like an interesting scientific oddity. I'm glad to hear of your optimism and your, and your focus on really getting back to the patients and improving the experience for them. Thank you so much, Lily, for doing this and for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Lily Peng for talking to us today, and thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Atrial, and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.